I grew up in a really small town in Washington State. I remember as a teen in the mid-90s having to take the bus to the next town over to buy Maximum Rock and Roll, the one bookstore that carried it. It was a, a whole process, like a ritual that I, I did with my friends. The trip was always exciting, just to get to go to another town for a minute where we didn't know anybody and act cool. I grew up in a little town far removed from cultural and countercultural centers and before the internet, and Maximum Rock and Roll made my world bigger in so many ways. Learning about new music or learning more about bands I already knew. The magazine was super exciting. It was like a little window looking into like perspectives and things that I never would have known about my stupid little small town world. Pouring over political and philosophical opinion columns and connecting with distant kindred minds. Getting mail and trading tapes with people all around the world. Maximum Rock and Roll gave me all of that and did the same for many others before and after me. I'm so grateful for all the effort put into keeping it going for so long. I just want to say thanks Maximum Rock and Roll. Uh, you've done a lot of good. Welcome to the Echo Chamber. I'm your host, Brandy Howell. On today's episode, Maximum Rock and Roll, the story behind the famed punk institution. Beginning in 1977, a group of Bay Area music fans, led by Tim Yohannan, began a weekly radio show out of the studio at KPFA in Berkeley, California. The driving impulse behind the show was simple an unabashed, uncompromising love of punk rock. By 1982, the punk scene had grown into a worldwide movement, and the founders of the show launched Maximum Rock and Roll as a print fanzine. Dedicated to anti-corporate ideals, leftist politics, and a relentless enthusiasm for DIY punk and hardcore bands from every inhabited continent of the globe, over the next several decades, What started as a do-it-yourself labor of love amongst a handful of friends had extended to include literally thousands of volunteers and hundreds of thousands of readers. For many, it became the punk rock Bible, the inky smudge of the black and white newsprint, providing a voice and community for young teenagers around the world, introducing them to bands and a sense of creative expression they had not known before. By 2019, The landscape of the punk underground, as well as print media itself, had dramatically shifted, and MRR announced the end to its print publication. Over these 42 years, with over 1,600 radio shows and 400 issues of fanzine to its claim, MRR came to represent a certain do-it-yourself ethos that extended far beyond the music itself. As the print zine came to an end last year, I invited some of the long-standing Maximum contributors to come together for a night to talk about the zine and its lasting impact on the global punk scene. Here's our conversation. Tonight we have with us Martin Sprouse, (laughs) Paul Curran, and Matt Bainhop. And before I introduce them, I just wanted to play a little taste of the early days of the radio show. And now, stay tuned for Tim and the Gang on Maximum Rock and Roll.
Hi, this is Maximum Rock and Roll. I'm Tim. Uh, this is Maximum Rock and Roll. I'm Tim. Uh, Tim here. And uh, we were supposed to have Bill Graham in here tonight. And he called up a couple of days ago and said he had big business in New York, which I think means uh, signing the Rolling Stones to a national tour to feed America's youth some more deadening stuff. If you guys wanted to introduce yourselves a bit and kind of give your background and how you were first introduced to the magazine. Yeah, my name is Martin Sprouse. I grew up in Southern California. So my first introduction to the magazine was the first compilation. Me and my friend Jason Traeger and Pat Weekland, we were doing our own fanzine in San Diego called The Leading Edge. And we found that record. Pat knew it was coming out. We found like the day they were unboxing it in a record store and we just go, oh, wow. Because it was the first time we knew there were hardcore bands playing up here, you know, that they existed up here. Because in Southern California, we were spoiled with them, but it was nice to see all these kids doing things. Um, and then from that, our local record store started carrying Max Rock and Roll from the first issue on. And when we first looked at it, it was like so different than what we're used to. You know, we're used to Flipside and um, Ripper, but Maximum to our teenage eyes was this thick. And it had politics right on the cover. And I was going, holy shit, this is great. You know, and his newsprint was messy, just like it is now, you know? <laughs> but it just looked so different, you know? And then we just kept buying the issues. And we started coming up here and visiting in 84, 83, just staying at the Maximum House. And then I moved up here in 85 to become part of Maximum. Is that enough background? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and I stopped doing Leading Edge and started working on Maximum and been involved with Maximum projects since then. And Paul has also been in the, in the magazine and various bands since 1983, contributing to all the graphics and the record reviewers, lists himself as a house cleaner, and <laughs> now is a member of the powerful and mysterious MMR board. Um, Paul, how did you first learn about Maximum? I first learned about Maximum probably by seeing the magazine I grew up in Benicia, which is a suburb, kind of far out suburb of the Bay Area. But my dad lived in Berkeley on Telegraph Avenue. So I, I would come visit my dad and just hang out on Telegraph. And I think I saw it, MRR in Universal Records, which was a olden days record store. And uh, on page two or three, it shows where the radio show is broadcast. And it was broadcast locally on KPFA, which is a very powerful signal. And so I could get it out in Benicia and just listen to MRR and learn about punk rock and uh, yeah, having that Berkeley connection, um, I, boy, <laughs> well, I, was, I was just like thinking like how, how much detail to tell, but um, uh, I, when you listen to the, to the radio show, um, they would just tell people to like call in if you want to be a guest DJ. It was that simple and I was yeah. like, I want to be a guest DJ. So I called in and I was a guest DJ and through that connection ended up volunteering at the magazine doing little paste-up layouts of things, and it's all downhill from there. And <laughs> Matt, you first came, moved to the Bay Area in 2011? Yeah, I was just thinking when Martin was talking, my um, getting involved with the magazine was kind of the same, but like many years later, like in the mid to late uh, 90s. But I grew, I grew up in the suburbs of Dallas, and me and my, me and my friends found it at Borders from, yeah. from that, from that yeah. big distribution. <laughs> Uh, yeah. it used to be that we were doing so and then we you know as we started doing bands and touring and stuff we would 
come out here and stay at the house and really? I, yeah, just, you know, knew a lot of the people connected to the magazine by that time. And, um, so naturally when I moved out here in 2011, I got recruited as a record reviewer and do radio show and all the other stuff now too. And Martin, I was wondering if we could step back and just kind of give a background <laughs> of Tim and sort of who Tim Yohannan was, the oh, founder of <laughs> this all, the legacy. I don't know how many people met Tim or just knew of him afterwards, but yeah, he was a pretty insane but very special dude. I mean, some of his best characteristics was he loved fucking punk rock. He loved music, you know, just full on everything about it. And he loved, he was very, he's one of the few people I met that has a very strategic mind. He's always like 20 steps of everybody else, not in a competitive way, but just thinking about new things, new projects, just to keep pushing forward. It was pretty amazing. He was not shy to do things that have never been done before. Um, and he also had this laugh. <laughs> Everyone <laughs> remembers the laugh, but, it, but you know. I feel like all the, like, because Jerk has such a, like, there's uh, another impresario of a uh, famous punk club that also yeah, had, like, Tim, really, Dirk, and Jello, put them yeah. in a room together, and it's the craziest <laughs> punk rock history thing, and yeah. just these very crazy personalities, and when they're all together, it's pretty amazing. But yeah, and, and Tim Yo, he was just, I mean, there's so much bullshit that's come out since he died. Like, people weren't really there, but they were just always talking shit about, like, he controlled everybody. It was just, like, this communist house and all this shit. But that was all, none of that's even remotely true. But also, Tim was really open to bringing people into the projects. Like, 13-year-old kids, you know, barely know how to play instruments. He'd play their demo on the radio show. Someone said they want to write a review at Maximum, and they're, they live in the East Bay. He'd make sure they get over here and write reviews. I mean... That was a special quality and that was honest. He didn't, it wasn't something he was trying to do. It's just second nature to him. It's also just being part of the punk community, part of Maximum. And also a lot of other people had a lot of say in Maximum. It wasn't just, it wasn't a dictatorship at all. It was always this, whoever did the most work got the most say. It's just kind of how organically those, you know, Maximum's structure worked. And you personally making the decision to move into, you, you're a teenager when you moved. Yeah up to, you know, left San Diego and moved up and moved into a punk rock house. And <laughs> like, what was that decision based well, on? I, I forgot to mention, I was writing scene reports for Maximum San Diego scene reports. I don't know, like 83, 80, I don't know, for a while there. And just coming up here and visiting and the whole weird story about me moving up here, I'll make this really quick, is me and my friend Jason were up here visiting and um, Joan and Bessie from the Rex who were on the first compilation, they were... This was all in the first Maximum Rock in the house over in Berkeley, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Oakland. Oakland, Berkeley, right on the border there. And all of us were hanging out. And when we were done hanging out that weekend, Tim sat us aside um, and proposed that me, Bessie, and Jason come and move up here and take over the magazine. This is 84. And it's because he wanted to start a punk club. And that was the very beginning of Gilman, at least the idea. So what happened is, Jonah and Jason didn't want to move up here, so I moved up here by myself, and wasn't really, we didn't really use the term coordinators yet, but I came up here and just had a you know, pretty big role in the magazine. Mm -hmm. And um, so that was it, yeah, moving, the house moved from Oakland, Berkeley over to Clipper Street in the city. And also I remember I was down in San Diego, I was I think 18, 17 or something like that. I'd be, Tim would call me up in the afternoon, he goes, yeah, and he would like come back from work and start looking all over the Bay Area for a place where you can open a punk club, but we also could live. And I was going, ugh, 
<laughs> I've been going to punk shows for a long time, but I wouldn't want to live where those shows were, you know? Because America was a little different. It wasn't like European hostel things or squats where it's nice. It was just like, and he goes, yeah, I found this thing. Maybe we could build bedrooms in the corner. I'm like, holy shit, I'm not going to live there, you know? But it worked out where he found this really nice house in Clipper. And then Gilman Street came a little bit later where, mm-hmm. um, what's the dude's name? He found it. Victor Hayden actually found the building where Gilman started. So, I know, that was, I don't know, I just wanted to be part of Maximum. It was nice. Mm-hmm. I was doing my own fanzine for so long. It just was nice to just be around a large group of people and be in San Francisco. But I was scared shitless when I moved to San Francisco. The day I moved here, I was listening to some radio station, and Penelope Houston was doing an acoustic version of a Ramon song. <laughs> and I said, fuck, man, this is going to be terrible. You know? <laughs> really bummed me out. I like Pelham Houston. I like the Ramones, but I just thought it's going to be so grown up and things were changing. And it really, I was fearful. Like I made the wrong decision. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> but this San, is, yeah. San Francisco had an older punk scene, mm-hmm. you know, and we hadn't really dived into the East Bay thing, you know, yeah. where all those amazing hardcore bands that were on the first record. But that was truly a fear of mine. <laughs> but fear not because it, oh, Not So Quiet was right yeah, yeah, just come out. And, and also everyone that I knew from the magazine started coming over and it had a way more youthful thing as well as a lot. Of, it was just a nice collaboration of people that have been around since day one and new people. That was what that was true for all Maximum projects mm-hmm. and still now, you know, if you could give a little background about Not So Quiet and kind of the influence and we have a few hmm. few clips we can maybe play. So Martin had selected a band seven seconds. Yeah. Can you talk about a little bit about the track and then we could give it a listen? Or we can, let's, let's give it a listen first. Yeah, and then. everyone's going to love it, right? <laughs> so this is a, a selection from the comp that Martin first heard. Right? So you're a teenager in San Diego, and you hear this song. Seven seconds would great, you know. We, we you know, I think that's how long a song should be, too. By yeah, like, I know. It feels like this song's only a minute seconds. long. What was, like... I think it was forty-nine seconds or something. Is it under a minute? Isn't it? It is. Anyways, <laughs> I still love that song, right? It's like they, their first seven, seven inch was out, and just like they just had a whole different vibe of what was going mm-hmm. on, like you know, just saying fuck racism, fuck this, fuck that. Sports. That song was called Fuck, fuck Your America, mm-hmm. which okay, still holds yeah. up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and had, had you listened to anything like that before much? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. We had listened mm-hmm. to a bunch of, like I said, I think seven, uh, seven Seconds' first 7-inch was out by then, and that was a super special 7-inch Skins, Brains, and Guts. It's totally great. And they had a couple of demos out before that, but I also just love the sound of that song. Is when 7 Seconds was a three-piece then, and I don't know. Kevin Seconds is a special mm-hmm. dude, too. So, yeah, that song, I still love that song. <laughs> I still love every song on that record, almost, except 
the oven is my friend. One of those <laughs> shitty church police. Church police. Some yeah. band that Jello probably put on that compilation. You know. And I was wondering if you could just share. There's so there's like 42 songs or something. Yeah, it's crazy, on, right? But it, you know, you can get away with that on an album when they're like one minute long punk songs. Right. But you were saying the. Um, it's sort of so most of the, it was a representation of Northern California hardcore bands, yeah. but one band that stood out for you was a band. It was like twelve-year-old kids. <laughs> yeah, this is this is a whole podcast in itself. Very important. This <laughs> this band called the Maniacs from Fresno, and this is really just kind of I'll make this story as short as possible, but it really shows you what Maxim is about. So they're a bunch of kids that twelve, thirteen years old, right? Mm -hmm. Like crazy young. They listened to Maximum Radio Show, like Paul was saying. And then they didn't even know how to form a band. They didn't know how to play instruments. They didn't know anything. And they made this crappy little, like, wasn't even a demo. It was just a song on a cassette. Sent it to the radio show. And there's a clip of the radio show somewhere where Tim and Jello are just going, Maniacs, you guys are great. Give us a call. We want to bring you up here and do things. Didn't they say that was the... They just recorded the tape and sent it. Like, it wasn't yeah. even a copy of the tape. No, it was yeah, like yeah. one tape. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> They made this tape yeah. for Maximum, and I think they recorded over like a, you know, some other m music, like their parents' music. It was just like this scrappy ass shit. Album or something. Then, <laughs> I know. Then Tim and Jello was so you can. There is a tape of, and you can hear how enthusiastic they are, and that's really the essence of Maximum. And then the funny thing, quick on the, the song that's on the Maximum Rock and Roll compilation. It's crazy. It's the second longest song. The first longest is Flipper, which is almost expected. You know, the droney Flipper thing. Maniacs, the guys that didn't know how to do anything but just put their heart into it, they had the second longest song, and I think that's because they didn't know how to stop. <laughs> they didn't know when to stop. It goes on forever. And then the other quick thing is you listen to that song, and the music or the guitars, the instruments go in and out, and you're like, what are these kids about? What, what are they trying to do this? <laughs> Surround sound. Yeah. yeah, and then you figure out the story is that they were in their garage. They didn't know how to record, so they were towing a little red wagon in the, around them and with a boom box, and then when the red... A wagon went near the guitar, you'd hear the guitar. When the wagon went near the <laughs> drums, you'd hear that. Like everyone thought, like, oh, they're really crazy. They're doing this really party technique. thing. Like these kids are just the red wagon. These kids are fucking smart. Fresno. <laughs> and then you find out like they just didn't know how to do anything, which made it made it, it made even, even better. I yeah. Think. And then for all those that want to know more about it, there was a 15-minute documentary about the maniacs on YouTube that Dale Stewart from Fresno, he's documenting everything about the Fresno punk scene and didn't even think twice, just did about the maniacs. And yeah. you hear a lot of that story, you know, it's pretty amazing. But anyways, that's a perfect example of Max and Rock and Roll, just bringing everybody yeah, in, and giving supporting a voice it, to... and being enthusiastic yeah. about kids trying to do something. Man, that is just, it was really amazing. So that's really the main thing about that and the Red Wagon. Those are two really good points about that story. <laughs> and then Paul's selection from the album is a song by the Rex, uh, Punk mm. is an Attitude. I was wondering if you could cue that up.
So Paul, as you were listening to this as a kid and hearing these lyrics, punk is an attitude, you know, can't give me his voice. No, honestly, if I think back, uh, it, it just baffled me. Like, because I, I, I didn't have the foundation of knowing what punk was in the first place, and then to be told, no, it's not about that. It's an attitude, and it's it's, it's like, I'm just like, that whole album is just me absorbing and just yeah. trying to figure out what the fuck it was. Like, that was <laughs> so, but I think that now in hindsight, like that's one of the most important songs on there because yeah. of. I mean, it being women, first of all. All female band. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was a lot. Can you talk a little bit about Threx? Do you know uh, much about their origin? I mean, Martin. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, mean personally. <laughs> they are, they're all from Reno. Um, Joan and Bessie. Bessie was one of the women I just mentioned to come up and take over Maximum. Um, they're from Reno. Bessie and Joan did this amazing fanzine called Paranoia. And it was just so smart-assy and crazy. And they just do these funny interviews with all these dude bands. And they were just do this really dry humor and the guys are all thrown off. <laughs> they were amazing. But the, the Reno scene had a lot of women, men. It was a perfect combination. And then mm. that song was just, you know, it was like what Paul said, it was really good. And also having an all-female band come out, you know? Yeah. And um, I don't know, just thinking, I'm, I'm going to go see Bikini Kill play in L.A. tomorrow night. And like, Nice, yeah. No, um, it seems like it set the stage for a lot of those bands. Yeah, yeah. I mean... It's, they don't it, get the credit they deserve. They don't, yeah. yeah. When, when Riot Girl happened, like, people were like, hey, check it out. Women are playing punk, and you're just kind of like, well, the you bread. know that. <laughs> yeah. All those early all-female bands didn't get the credit as much as they should. Yeah. But um, punk, yeah. punk is an attitude, and trendies <laughs> suck. It all, it, you know, again, it holds up. America, <laughs> America still sucks. Trendies still suck. And here we are. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there's... If people aren't familiar with kind of the structure of the magazine, so it was all compiled out of a punk house in the Bay that, you know, sort of moved around. But can you kind of talk about the community of, of shit workers, as they're called, the volunteer base that really put the magazine together throughout the years and what the early days? I mean, there's such an aesthetic as, and this is the last issue, but, you know, it sort of has that, that cut and paste zine feel that <laughs> took a while to to put together. Can you talk about just the, the structure and the layout and design that went into those early issues? Um, yeah, yeah, well, again, it comes down a lot to Tim's powers of organization. Uh, he was able to um, uh, have things together enough to where people could come in and do it. So when I would come in to do a layout, he'd be like, well, you know, here's all the Mm-hmm. Here's the, the the galleys. This is going way back in time for how things used to work. We used to like send things out to get typeset and sent back in these strips that we would cut and have the the pictures like had been half toned at at um, a certain size and and so he would have all these things ready and then it's like here you know like have yeah. at it. So in, in a sense it was kind of like yeah just like inviting random people over to do random work and hope that it gets done right. And on the other hand it was like the most well oiled machine in the world and only. Literally, like only Tim could do it. Tim passed away in 1998, right? Mm-hmm. And um, you know, since then, it's been other people doing that particular job, and it's always taken two or three people to do that amount of work, and it's still still kind of too much <laughs> for two or three people to do. But um, in the sense that, yeah, there's a, it's always been contributor based, like the mm-hmm. the columns and the interviews you know and just people sending their records in for review it's always been this thing that people want to be part of and 
and um, and they're allowed to be part of. And I don't know. These kind of things get me choked up because it's <laughs> we just finished our last issue. So. Mm -hmm. oh. Also, you guys had Sunday work meetings, right? Remember, everyone would come over on Sundays and do layouts and type. Yeah, yeah that was the main way. And what was people. the sort of atmosphere of those? I didn't. That was a. You knew more about. It. I came there. I did some work when I was visiting. But. Yeah. Oh, it was just it was exciting to be yeah. you know as a kid, just to feel part of something, and that's still to this day the best part of working at Maximum is when a bunch of people are over at the house yeah. doing work and we're listening to records and um, yeah um, again uh, just having that structure for that stuff to come together was what it was all about and um, I, I don't know what else to yeah. say about this. <laughs> yeah. yeah it was a really great thing and <coughs> Tim blames me for ruining those Sunday work parties why? Because <laughs> when I moved up here, I'm, I was like a workaholic, right? And I just started doing everything in the weekdays before Sunday. Then eventually, Sunday stuff just kind of faded out. Oh, <laughs> and I didn't want it to be that way. But then Tim just goes, man, you just fucked that up. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's just you and me sitting here. But a lot of people came over during the week. But they're just the Sunday work parties faded out within a year or something. So, uh -huh. yeah, I did that one. Not, not very good, but... Um, and then there's also, so the zine and then the radio component. And the first 10 years or so, it was out at KPFA, mm -hmm. which is a community station in um, Berkeley. That's sort of your, imagine your typical Berkeley hippies kind of running <laughs> a station. And then a bunch of punks come in and take over the airwaves. And I just wanted to give you, so we have, if you could play the, the pledge drive clip. So this is a clip from 81 during the pledge drive of a community public radio station in Berkeley with <laughs> punks taking over the airwaves. We would still like to get some unsolicited pledges. We don't really want to talk about it. Hold on. Somebody just called in and pledged 200 bucks. If, if. We would match it. If we can get a bunch of people to call in now and match that 200. Yeah, so come on, you if, wimps. If you, you wankers. KPFA. Eight four eight five seven three two. Right now, in the next ten minutes, if we can raise two hundred bucks, this guy's going to pledge his two hundred to match your two hundred. Hey. So if a bunch of you would call right now, eight four eight KPFA, that would really uh, double what you're about to donate. Right. All right. Come on. We got three calls in. Uh, let's see. The, uh, we got five calls in. Looking for six. Looking right. for six. Have we got six? We need at least, Come I would on, say... Six. Let's see. Let's turn this way. We if need, you want to hear Black Flag at 10 o'clock, you'll, you'll call right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little different than KQED. Form, <laughs> that was Jeff Dale. So anyway, so, you know, there's like, you guys were just kind of taking over the airwaves, and there's always a bit of of dynamics between... The, the punks and the hippies. <laughs> but you guys brought in the most fundraising, so you yeah. sort of held the, the power for a while. Can you talk about sort of the, those dynamics of the station? Um, gosh, they, they didn't really like us. But they had to like us because we brought in so much money. But, yeah. you know, they were just weird Berkeley, you know, wearing ugly shoes and, <laughs> you know, and... <laughs> thinking that, you know, they just didn't have that respect. And we really, you know, we brought in a lot of money. We respected the station and we really believed in it. But it was always a war with them and we couldn't really figure out. They're always trying to give us bad time slots. Mm -hmm. And we would, you know, then they tried to kick, early on they had a boycott, right? Or they had a protest. What was that over? That was late 70s, maybe? Yeah, was that, that was. Uh, the time slot thing, wasn't it? 
Yeah, I think that um, the station had promised them a better time slot if they, you know, had like mm -hmm. uh, met certain goals, and then they did, and the station said no. And actually, and then Tim, being the organizer he is, was just like, "We're going to have a demonstration then, right they outside did. the radio station." <laughs> they did, they, like, yeah, like, and the the great irony of you know having a Pro having a protest outside the, the <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, the community radio station set up by the, the you know the children of the free speech movement, yeah. you know, like. Just shows you how it it's goes. Beautiful, and then and it was successful, and um, kept going. Yeah, and so they were ended up in a um, nine nine to eleven p.m. slot, which um, yeah, to me was prime time. That was you know mm -hmm. bedtime, and my parents weren't going to bug me, and I could just <laughs> listen uh -huh. to punk rock at night. Yeah, and also another special aspect of when the radio show was there, everyone would come in and hang out at the radio show, and where they're doing playing the records and Ruth or whoever was running all the turntable stuff, it was just a big hang there. It was amazing. Like all the Berkeley kids, Berkeley punk kids would come there and you just meet a lot of different people. Then the bands would come in there. So it had this really nice community thing based around people playing mm -hmm. records and like what Paul was saying, doing guest sets, announcing records. And uh, it was a, that was a good thing. And you could just come in and kind of DJ if you wanted to. You had to kind of arrange ahead of time. You could announce songs, but if you wanted to do a special set, you'd have to kind of let them know a day or two before, but it's just people just listening to music and hanging out and talking. That was amazing. And I just wanted to play, so going through the archives, they're, like they're saying, you know, bands would be coming through and and would come in and guest DJ and, and mm -hmm. come in for interviews. Yeah. And I've been going through the archives and there's a, a clip um, from the early days of Sonic Youth when they came <laughs> through the station. So if you could play that. Okay, we're going to continue the discussion with Sonic Youth from New York, and we were talking about <laughs> musical approaches. Uh, maybe, maybe we should talk a little bit about um, philosophical or uh, political ideas that you might have. Do you express political ideas in your music at all? I, I actually don't think it's possible for anyone to be really political in, in America. The music somewhat so emotionally this is Kim based yeah. is sort of trying to break through certain repressions that are, to me, indigenously American. Rock, to me, is political just because it attempts to be uninhibited sexually. And that, to mm. me, is the only way to be political if there is such a thing as politics in America. So, all right, let's <laughs> talk uh, briefly about upcoming projects. Oh, we just have, like, an album that's coming out at the end of January, if anybody's interested, and it's called Bad Moon Rising, and it's available on Homestead Records. If you're interested in us or like us or whatever, keep an eye out for it. Do you uh, encourage people writing directly to you? If they can, yeah, they can write to me. I mean, if you want me to give my address over the air. Sure. It's 84 Eldridge Street, E-L-D-R-I-D-G-E, -E, apartment number 5, New York City, 1002. Okay, and Thurston Plex Records, too, so... <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Send me your wallet. Send me your wallet. What year is that from? Sale. It's still like 84, okay, I think. I think yeah. uh, we better wrap yeah. this up, okay. actually. Okay. Anything else you want to add, Any anybody? No, nope. thanks for having us on. Okay. Yeah. Nice cool. talking to you. Okay, out there to you folks. So I think that just... I, I really loved hearing that, you know, just this era of... Like before internet, you know, before they obviously became one of the biggest rock bands, like a few <laughs> years later, but here they are just coming through town. And if people wanted to write Thurston, like he just gave his address on air. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot of moments of just like, you know, people coming through and like different spontaneous moments. Yeah. Like what were some of the, the highlights of those early radio shows? Um, 
I remember being there when the subhumans from England came, and they were like the punkest people I ever saw. They were leather jackets and had mm-hmm. spiky hair and stuff and like Bay Area, Bay Area punks like kind of just dressed in like you know flannels and ma- maybe some boots is how as, as punk as it would get and like yeah and I was just like oh man you know like they were that was pretty crazy um and uh that, that also reminded me that like people would come on and just, it, there was kind of like this sort of like classified ad element to it. Like I remember guest DJs being like, and yeah, if you want to trade tapes or anything, just like call me, you know, yeah. like give their phone number out, you know, like, so true. and we totally would like yeah. I would call those kids up and stuff. And like, um, uh, yeah, it was a real community thing. And something I can't, can't remember if we've touched on yet, but like the KPFA signal is something like 40, 50,000 Watts, which is ginormous. It, it, um, and so, you know, most community radio stations are just like pretty, pretty localized things. But that was the entirety of Northern California. If you count that they had sister stations in like Guerneville and Fresno and, and San Jose. Um, so it's just kind of baffling to think about the, the reach. It was also, had. you know, Ruth would be copying the tapes every week and distributing them out throughout the country oh that too yeah there were mm-hmm. yeah it was syndicated like manually syndicated yeah ma- mailing the tapes to the radio stations every week um boy <laughs> it's hard to imagine I no rem- people go ahead I, I remember one crazy radio show it's when the sf skins came mm. to the radio sh- uh station to work things out and this is pre <laughs> pre-nazi skins but sf skins were like these street dudes Mark Dagger, what were some of those dudes? Man, they were just fucking mean, tough dudes, but not Nazis, but streak dudes. And they beat the shit out of everybody at punk shows, Sucker Punch, and it was just nuts. And I th- think even Tim got punched by one of them. So Tim, never fearing conflict or confrontation, invited him to come on the radio show and work things out. And I was at that radio show, I go, fuck, these guys are here? <laughs> and it was so crazy because they were trying to make peace and some kid called in and goes, just some young kid, he goes, oh man, you guys suck, you punch all my friends. And the guy goes, no we don't, what's your phone number? Give me your phone number right now. <laughs> it was just, and the whole night of that radio show was like that, it was really tense and stuff. Yeah. But again, it wasn't a Nazi thing, it was just dumbass, really big skinhead dudes, you know? Yeah. But that was a very interesting thing of bringing confrontation in. You know, and I guess the, also the most famous one was Bill Graham, right? They had oh shit, yeah, 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 they, yeah that was Bill Graham came to the radio station. That's yeah, a good interview yeah. with Tim Yo did it right. It was, I think Tim and Jeff. Yeah, yeah. do you remember exactly him. what they they were confronting him about? Just about his stronghold on the trying to he was trying to get start doing punk shows. Ah, uh, yeah, and they were going no way. And a couple bands had started playing shows, a little bigger bands, but yeah, they brought him on, and he would just. He was saying, oh, we can do this all together. And Tim and Jeff just said, no, you're corporate. And they were just confronting him. It was actually a really interesting interview. Mm-hmm. I think that was it. Yeah. I love so much about the magazine, you know, before everyone said, you know, it was the community that before the Internet, you know, every totally. you either learned about new bands or would listen, you know, exchange tapes, and there's even, like, a pen pal section. Pen pals, that's all you it could, was. Like, everyone yeah. talks about, like, oh, I had pen pals in that's, the 80s and 90s. That's and, how I met everybody. Yeah. Writing before, letters. Before social media. Yeah, well, like, it was maximum. the internet. Yeah, we had pen pals. That's how me and Winnie met. Winnie right there. <laughs> he lived in Germany, I lived in the U.S., and we traded fanzines, you know? That's amazing. Yeah, and we're still friends now. But, yeah, that pen pal thing was a huge part, not just in Maximum, just in the early 80s that's how all the bands met or how they all tried to tour fanzines everything it was amazing a lot of those people i'm still friends with today 
No, I think it's such a like it's fantastic a aspect. I mean, it just when demonstrates you explain that, it to kids. Yeah. It's really weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the fuck is a pen pal? <laughs> but that like these like nostalgic like sort of correspondence via mail would come out of a punk magazine. I know, right? <laughs> um, so anyway, so then you touched about so when you moved up, Tim had this idea that he was going to open a punk club. Yeah. And at this point, the zine was like quite profitable. And nice. bringing a lot of money in, yes. and but you know it was a DIY scene, and they they used the money to fund other projects, yeah. and one of them being, you know, now the most famous punk punk club, uh, you know, one of them ever, probably, um, yeah. you know, in Gilman Street. And I was wondering if you could talk about kind of that like first time, like Tim's like, oh, I want to want to start this club. Yeah, and then that he, you know, the solo thing kind of went away pretty fast and he's bringing people in to help start doing this, you know, because it, it wasn't a maximum project. I mean, maximum was making so much money then just from advertising and sales. And Tim Yo always wanted to use that money for something else because none of us got paid. So we always tried to give all the money away. So maximum rock and roll financed the beginning of Gilman, which was a chunk of money, but we didn't even feel it, you know? And then what's really interesting about Gilman is it being in the East Bay, a lot of people from the East Bay that weren't part of Maximum directly all came together and it started this whole new community of people that put in a lot of work, like a year's worth of work to open Gilman, you know? And what was the duration between that initial stage and when it finally opened? How long did it take? To Tim get... was looking to have us live in a punk warehouse. That was in 85, 84, 85. And then Gilman actually opened in New Year's Eve of 87. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we actually had the lease a year before we were doing construction and dealing with the city of Berkeley. They didn't want a punk club opened. One funny thing is they wanted us to pay for like 20 streetlights in that area because they thought we were going to be a money making business. And we had to go to the community meeting with Berkeley people. And it was just another like <laughs> people in bad shoes telling us what to do. You know, <laughs> it's terrible. Man. But we won. Tim Yo again, organized this thing. People came there and told their own stories. He wasn't coaching anything. It was just this heartfelt thing because mm -hmm. we knew we were doing something right. And that's way before we even opened, you know? Mm -hmm. And they still didn't really like us, but they knew that we didn't need to pay for 20 streetlights. But then they started liking us, yeah. you know? Yeah. And can you kind of, if people aren't familiar with Gilman, I mean, you know, there's the, the music club, but it's really, again, another DIY community that emerged out of that. Um, you know, unlike the Fillmore or some of these, mm -hmm. you know, major venues, it really, it's a community run, all nonprofit, yeah. um, volunteer based music club. Um, can you kind of talk about the ethos behind? You want to do that one? You can do that one. Right? The ethos. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, yeah. It's just kind of the, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean. The fundamental values and core behind Gilman. It was meant to be. Well, it was kind of meant to be a safe space before that was even a word because it's true. it was the days of, there literally were skinheads just like randomly showing up and randomly being random people up. And, um, and this was meant to be a place where that wasn't tolerated and where um, other kinds of, uh, um, I don't know, just racism, sexism, homophobia, it's right there on the wall when you walk in. Um, those 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 things weren't acceptable because it was meant to be for everybody, and yeah, just again another good example of like building a good foundation for then other people to just come in and run it, and it's still it's still going like it's pretty amazing like it's been through a lot of ups and downs, but 
it's still run under the exact same principles, mm -hmm. and uh, it's it's very remarkable, and uh, it's I don't know it's it's almost like not really appreciated that much anymore because it's so well established and been there forever. But I don't know people ought to. But at the time, it was a pretty revolutionary type. Yeah, it idea. was, yeah. yeah. I think so. Yeah, I don't think anybody had done anything like that before, right? Like, not on that, where it's just like run by punk kids for punk kids, you know? And it was really 100% that way, and everyone mm -hmm. did the work. We did the security. So when, <laughs> and we wouldn't let anybody, you know, that membership card was a way of being able to have people be part of the community and kick people out. You know, so if someone started a fight, we get this is the reason to throw them out. It's not like, okay, stop fighting, let the show go on. We just kick people out. And, you know, we had to do our own security. And again, skinheads, this was now becoming suburban skinheads that were more Nazi, racist, white kids. And they'd come to the thing and we'd have huge confrontations with them. Because if someone started shit, all the bands had to stop. Mm -hmm. Music was secondary, the community was first. And a bunch of scrawny little punk kids were confronting these, you know, Fucking skinheads, they just always are just what they are, you know? And it, but we push them out. It's almost like this, just a blockade. They couldn't come in and we just stand there until they leave. Mm -hmm. And then a bunch of bad stuff happened when they started beating people outside. But that was one amazing thing where kids just stopped. Because I came from Southern California, that never happened. They were just crazy fights all the time. But this, everyone came together and pushed people out and blocked the entryway. Mm -hmm. You know, that's another huge thing. Again, that was the community coming together, you know? And then you kind of have out of that scene the whole, you know, 90s East Bay punk that really became synonymous with, you know, the punk break breaking through in 94 was a big, and, and around I'm that sure time, <laughs> Turnaround came. Um, and another key comp album, which is Turnaround, came, which featured a lot of the East Bay punk scenes. Um, I was wondering if we could play the op Ivy. So this was um, a song from Operation Ivy, which when is one key bands of that era. Like all of a sudden, punk exploded, and what would, what, how did that change things at, at maximum when every teenage kid in America was listening to punk and Green Day? I got a great story about Green Day. <laughs> I was wondering when Green Day was going to yeah. come out. Um, yeah, when they went big. Tim was still alive. We were living on the Clipper house, and after Green Day sold, I don't know, a million records, they get these little platinum things or whatever these 
things in frames where they have the album. And Green Day, you know, they get to, I guess you get to get how many ever you want to give to your producer or record label. They made a custom one for Tim Yo and had it delivered to the Maximum House. So he was stuck there with a Green Day Platinum thing. It was the best joke they ever pulled on Tim. <laughs> it was really, really funny just holding this thing. And that was a really great one. I don't know where that thing is, but it was like etched and everything. Came right from the record label right to the Maximum House with Tim Yo's name on it. Got to give it up to those guys for that. <laughs> Too bad we don't have that now. We probably could have saved the magazine. Selling <laughs> that thing, I don't know. I think Lance Hahn took it or something. Oh, I don't. Really? Yeah, it was. Yeah, Tim Yo tried to give it away the minute he opened the package. <laughs> I don't want that. But he was laughing because he appreciated a smart ass thing. Um, so speaking of the record, so Matt was one of the the last DJ to. Um, do a radio show utilizing the the record collection at the house before. So um, Maximum, with the, the closing of the zine, it's also had to put their, their amazing record collection in storage. Um, hmm. But Matt's last show uh, pulled deep from the archives. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the, the archive and... Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you do a regular radio show at the house, I, you know, I would always bring some stuff and try to play some new stuff, but then just play whatever I'm listening to. And um, since I knew we were going to move, we have like, I don't know the exact count, but we're probably at about 60,000 records at this point. I mean, it's everything from day one and then everything since. And people still send us stuff for review and it all goes in the archive. So um, I just thought like if, you know, you know, the records, we still have them. We don't have, they're not publicly like accessible now like they used to be until we find another space. But it potentially could have been one of the last times for a while that we could have a radio show just based off of the collection. And I don't know. I mean, with the internet nowadays, like there's nothing that's obscure. There's nothing, everybody knows about everything. But I kind of wanted to see if I could just dig real deep and turn some stuff up. And I had a few other people at the house like, oh, have you ever heard of this or heard of this? And just stuff by like bands called like the Angry Housewives and yeah. just kind of stuff that maybe didn't ever make it onto one of these like crazy compilations, the like record nerd compilations. Um, so I, I based the show off of that and we actually found a lot of really cool stuff. So here's a little clip if you want to play Janice. Yeah, 
it's basically just anything with like a crazy cover or like a ridiculous song title or something that none of us could like knew what it was but was funny and also mostly good there were a few bad songs too that i had to play because Um, of the title or something yeah no you i think the the first set was all fruit bands Uh so you had the mandarins mangoes and endless bananas which was just (laughs) it was it was coincidental (laughs) but you know when you've got all your material in front of you you like gotta couple it up somehow and then space invaders violent anal death doing a song called hungry hungry hippos i think that was the one that i played just because they had probably never been played on the radio before (laughs) it was not good um, and then, like you mentioned, uh, the Angry Housewives doing a song. It was like, it was called... Eat Your Fucking Cornflakes. Yeah. <laughs> so good. And I, of and course, I, I had to do some research, and this was like a promo single. I think from, it was like a community play in Seattle. It was Seattle. a play in Seattle, but the the single is so good. Both sides of it are just awesome. It's kind of like a fake punk band. There was this whole phenomenon of like fake cat, like punk 45s of like limited copies in the late 70s and early 80s and it totally falls into that category. Mm-hmm. It's just still so good. Um, and how did you go, I mean, what was it like going through, just throughout your years as a DJ, having access to arguably the largest punk collection? I don't know. I feel like I took it for granted at this point. I mean, when I first started coming out here and visiting, I, I would, you know, be on tour with a band and we would stay there and we would all just be like, trying to find the records we've never seen before because me and a lot of my friends were record collectors or just, I mean, having access to that archive is like, if you're into music, Mm -hmm. punk music specifically, was like, there's like nothing else like it in the world. I mean, all the rare stuff, all kinds of special stuff. And and I should sit, like talk for a second and maybe you guys could add to this. Everything, it has green tape around it, like (laughs) green duct tape kind of, because when, I guess when Tim was a kid, he and his brother both collected records and like, Tim used green tape and his brother used like blue or some other color. Um, and so that was how they tell, told their records apart. And this just became like the maximum collection. So, and to this day, we still put green, like 60,000 records with green tape around the covers. Um, and that's just another thing. You show up and there's just like wall of green. And it ruins all the, all the sleeves. And yeah. it ruins every record. It does. And everybody, we all hate it. Like, why wasn't there a stamp or like some other archival thing? But it's just this tradition that you just don't argue with and we just keep doing it. And the, like whoever makes the green tape is like Three probably s- yeah. stays in business because of us. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, the archive is like amazing. And um, so we have just a few minutes left and I wanted to just kind of close. Wow. So, um, so in January it was announced that the, the zine was ending its print run. And um, you know, this, came as kind of a surprise to a lot of people. I was wondering if you could just talk about the decision um, Paul's probably and Matt most knowledgeable about sort of the decision after 30 plus years of ending the magazine. Yeah, well, I mean, there was a lot of stuff that's like kind of nuts and bolts and not interesting about it, Um, but it came down to people just weren't buying the magazine anymore. People aren't buying magazines in general anymore. And uh, the cost of living is, you know, ever increasing, especially here in San Francisco. And uh, for a long time, we've just been barely squeaking by. And it just kind of one day got to the point where we were just looking at it. And it's like, it's just untenable. And, uh, and I think it was a matter of like doing it on our own terms rather than like outside forces like crushing us. 
Right. All of a sudden. Yeah, we didn't want to wait till one day. We just Get couldn't, couldn't pay the bill. Some, you know, everybody yeah. quits or whatever, yeah. Um, so. Yeah, so it's just been this enormous ship to try to stop now. Uh, it's it's um, uh, <laughs> it's been a rough three been months, consuming. but it's also been kind of cool because like a lot of a lot of us have had to like band together and really, really make it make it happen. Um, and then, which I'm sure is your next question, mm -hmm. um, uh, a lot of trying to take this energy and just move forward to still being on the web and still like providing what we've always done, which is um, coverage of underground music stuff that you wouldn't otherwise know about, and. Um, Still in the same spirit that I mean, when you guys were talking earlier, like radio show was like this and this. It's like, well, it kind of still is. It's like mm -hmm. all submission based. It's like, you know, we want to be. If you wanted to come to the house and you were just like some random person, you like call and be like, hey, can I come around five or whatever and check out the mm -hmm. people would come and do research on like the the magazine archives and stuff. And mm -hmm. and that's like the kind of spirit we want to continue like with however you know we are gonna go with this. Mm -hmm. So we'll still continue to do MRR radio and still continue to write record reviews and do all the things, at least most of the things that the magazine did online, which, you know, isn't as glamorous, but I have a feeling there's going to be more people, you know, more, more people reading a website yeah. than have been reading the magazine, uh, even though, you know, everybody, when we, sit, when we announced that it was ending, was just like, what? What? The magazine's going away? <laughs> it's like, if all those people that said what had actually been buying and reading the magazine, then we wouldn't be in this predicament. So, you know. Yeah. And just kind of in conclusion, um, if you want to talk to just, I mean, especially for, for Paul and Martin, who've been involved now um, since 83, like what, what role has, you know, in reflection, what role has Maximum played in your life and the it influence? It ruined my life. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, you're here now. I know, I know. No, it was essential you know moving up here when you're a teenager and still being part of it and just watching it even when I pulled back I you know kind of pulled back a year or two after Tim died I still kind of kept in touch with everybody but it just kept going it keeps going and going and that's a beautiful thing and Maximum's been going on longer without Tim than it had with Tim and it's just amazing that it's able to do that you know and actually I I supported the board's decision to end the magazine and I always have this thing just a hypothetical that I think Tim would have shut the magazine down 15 years ago and gone online because it would be free and it would make so much more sense to him. He would have created this online presence that would be probably somewhat unique, you know, but he would have, that's my thought. He would have killed that thing and just said, no, no mail, nothing. Everything's free and go that direction in a positive way, you know, killing the magazine in a positive way, going to the next, next stage. Like more accessible. Yeah. That yeah. would, he would love that, you know? Can you talk briefly about, so you, you designed the last issue cover. <laughs> yeah. what, what went into your decision? It looks design? good. <laughs> <laughs> Can you um, talk about There's a really weird, deep concept there, but it sounds so arty and weird, you know? Um, <laughs> Give it to us. Oh, my God. <laughs> Break it down. All right. I mean, as you can see, that's the discharge face, which is part of their logo, most well-known thing on shirts and stuff. And there's a weird story behind that. It's like... A, face of Mark Stewart from the pop group that nobody knew that was his, uh, his face and no one knows why Discharge used it. It's a funny little story, but it's also um, the spray paint kind of represents killing the old and coming with the new, you know, and kind of both of them working together, you know, spray painting someone's face a little disrespectful. And um, 
there's another this is also lame it's just, no, no, it, just it just it's looks good, good really yeah. but the other thing is me and t uh, me and tim always used to talk about you know how music started tim had this theory that discharge was the first thrash band and i go wow i think you're right and he goes yeah and so that was a really interesting thing we never really talked about it publicly but it was kind of interesting that way and then putting never again on the cover which is a discharge song that was not my doing man <laughs> that was grace who works at maximum and i gave her like half the credit for the cover because that was the best idea ever i didn't think of that i'm not that clever <laughs> but it just made a, the final issue there you know where we kind of left off some of the information and just said never again yeah why'd you slap the barcode right in the middle because it looks good it's being yeah. honest about yeah. it you know it's being honest about the barcode it's like not shameful of trying to hide it just like here it is yeah. but i think i left off the i kept the date or no date right we didn't put the issue number on it. it was, yeah, no it's issue number. Issue. That was the first yeah. issue number. I tried to not put any of that information on there, but they got <laughs> mad at me because I just thought it's the last issue. We had a long email thread that was I didn't, I didn't even want to sorting put the, all that shit. I didn't want to put the logo on it. I go, we don't have to put the logo on it. It'll sell without the logo. I just, I was trying to do that, but I had a compromise there. I think it went well. <laughs> and what's it like for you, Paul, seeing the last print issue? Um, yeah, it's, I, I don't know. It, 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 <laughs> well said. It had to happen at some point, so I'm glad it happened. Did you ever imagine when you're, you know, a teenage kid that you'd be still involved? No, no, not at all, <laughs> not at all. Because especially back then, like punks didn't stay punk, you know. Like the, yeah. people dropped out when they, like, you know, became adults and got jobs or whatever. So some nobody, of, some of which will probably hear this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right? But it's amazing. I mean, there's especially in the Bay Area, there's tons of old punks, and it's like. Yeah, it's cool that a lot of us stuck around. Um, and uh, I don't know, to answer your question without, well, I, I probably won't be able to without crying, but like um, the, the influence that Tim had was that of being somebody, an adult who encouraged you to participate and gave you the means, the tools to participate. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, it's weird to think that, you know, in hindsight, that like so many people didn't have somebody like that. They, were, you know, they didn't even know there was an alternative in the world to doing things the way you were told. And um, that's incredibly fucking special. Mm -hmm. And Matt, can kind of continuing being part of the team that's continuing. What do you hope to see for the future? Um. I mean, like like Paul said, the the radio and the reviews will still continue, and like it's kind of hard to, to visualize exactly what it's going to look like. And we've, we're having a ton of meetings trying to figure out how to like take this content and like evolve it. Um, cause it kind of feels like we're like behind the times in a way. And there's like this huge space we could have stepped into like before like social media became a thing. Um, cause now everybody's just on that. Maybe we can reclaim some of it and like do this like completely different thing, but it's just this, um, yeah, right now we're, we're, We've been doing logistic stuff the past three months and we're just kind of at the tail end of that. And then, I mean, we still have enough people like here locally that I think are like invested to, to keep putting our energy and like uphold all of our principles and everything. And then we have people worldwide too that are invested in this. And like, it could potentially be this really cool thing that's way more decentralized where like, are, you know, people in like Europe and Southeast Asia and everywhere else can be just as much a part of it. As, as we are and do the same kind of work that we're doing into creating something that's like 
more accessible to everybody rather than like having to spend $25 on a magazine if you lived in, lived in, live in Indonesia or something, mm-hmm. you know. So. I think like Martin was saying, that's like really represents Tim's idea yeah. of bringing voice to, you know, these international communities, Definitely. you know, with the internet. I mean, you yeah. can really achieve those goals almost better than just so. having the, a zine holding everything together. Yeah. But, but Maxim really did bring the whole international community almost sooner totally. than anybody else, you know? Yeah, like bands that nobody ever heard of. You can about. like see it happen in the yeah. first few issues. It's yeah. crazy. Jeff Bale. It's Yellow. like there's like a Finland scene report and then yeah. like a Brazil scene report and then there's this like Finnish Brazilian thing that's to this day still yeah. exists that's it's just cr- because of that. Like, and that was like in first, second, third yeah. issue. You know, it's crazy. So that was an amazing thing about it. It went global and it still is global. Totally. You know? It was like a web of worldwide intersecting <laughs> ideas and like, information. Well put. <laughs> so, so did Tim invent the internet? Is that what you're saying? www.maximumrockandroll.com yeah, <laughs> And with that... Um, Write us at MRR at MaximumRockandRoll.com and get involved. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Special thanks to Beta Brand for hosting this event. And thanks again to Paul Kern, Martin Sprouse, and Matt Badenhop for participating in this conversation. And to the thousands of volunteers that made and continue to make up the Maximum Rock and Roll community. The radio show and record views are still continuing and can be found online at MaximumRockandRoll.com. As I said in their announcement at the end of their print format last year, we are still the place to turn if you care about Swedish girl bands or Brazilian thrash, or Italian anarchist publications, or Filipino teenagers making anti-state pogo punk. If you are interested in media made by and for punks, if you still believe in the power and potential of autonomously produced and underground culture, we certainly still do, and look forward to the surprises, challenges, and joys that this new chapter will bring. Long live maximum rock and roll. And thanks to you for listening. If you like this episode, please consider sharing it with a friend and subscribing wherever you find your podcasts. Till then, you've been listening to The Echo Chamber. I'm your host, Brandi Hall. Thanks for tuning in.